you all have a Bible, if you would find the book of Amos. So it's Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. Nine chapters. And while you're finding it, let's pray. And Father, we just thank you once again. Uh, we just thank you that we have an opportunity tonight to hear your word. And I just ask that you'll open all of our hearts. I ask you'll give me words to speak that will minister to individual needs here. Uh, and we just thank you that you'll meet with us and speak to us once again. We just thank you for this opportunity. And uh, we just do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, you know, if you've ever watched a movie that was made before the 1960s, so when the story's been told and the movie's over and the last scene fades from view, they always have a message for the audience. And what is it? The end. Six letters, two words. But those two words have a finality about them unlike any other two words in the English language. So the story is over at that point, and whether a good or bad experience happened, it is finished. So the movie might have started off with a promised future for the star or whoever, and it ends up with an experience that's all messed up or a bad experience, you don't know. Or it may have started off well and ended well from start to finish. But regardless of how the movie went, when the two words appear, any hope that something good could continue or something bad to be resolved, at that point, it's all over. Once you see the end, it's all over, and there's nothing else to add. And we're getting ready to look at Amos, and that's the case of the story of Israel in the mid-8th century B.C. So Israel at this point, they are a divided kingdom. And the northern tribes are under the leadership of Jeroboam II. And Judah in the south is headed by King Uzziah. And both of them, right now, most people don't know that this was probably the greatest military and economic prosperity Israel and Judah ever had. They had peace, military strength, and economic prosperity. And they would have attributed all of that to the blessing of the Lord being on them. And so as a result of that, they were religious, but just religious. So they would worship the Lord in an outward way. And so to the outward eye, it looks like Israel is in their golden age. They're religious. They got shrines set up all over the place. They're worshiping. Things are going good with their military. Nobody's attacking them. It looks like a fairy book story is beginning to happen here. And not unlike America in the 20th century and even today. But as the story unfolds with Israel, it appears and it's obvious that all that glitters isn't gold. So they're busy in religious activity, but their allegiance to God is terrible, severely lacking. And in his wisdom, God raises up a prophet, a humble farmer from Judah. His name is Amos, who has the unenviable task of exposing all this hypocrisy and false worship. So if you look in chapter 1, this wasn't part of my message, but I want to just cover this briefly, give a little background here. But we read in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the words of Amos. And here's, we know a little background. A lot of the prophets we don't know that much about, but we know old Amos was a herdsman. And he also did sycamore trees. He combined the two. So he was probably fairly well off for that day. But he had a common occupation, being a herdsman. And it says he's from Tekoa. Well, Tekoa was about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. So what we need to know from that is he is down from Judah. And Judah and Israel, now at this time they weren't fighting a lot, but typically they didn't get along. 
the northern tribes and the people from down in Judah. So here he is, he's a southerner. And he's coming up to Israel and he's got a message for him. And here's what it says in verse 2. He says, here's what his message is. The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. Now, I'll tell you, they weren't worshiping down in Jerusalem. Jeroboam had set up altars up north to keep his people from going down there. He didn't want them to start liking Judah and get back in an alliance with them. But there's he's saying here, hey, they knew all the stories of the Old Testament, though. And where is the temple set up? Where is God speaking from? Where did David reign? Jerusalem. So when he's saying the Lord is roaring from Jerusalem, their ears, these people in Israel, their ears are perking up. Now, right there, we don't know what the roaring's all about because there's a lot of things in the world that roar, aren't there? Like waterfalls. When you have a battle, there's usually a roar from the battle. But we just look over in chapter 3, verse 8 quickly, and it tells us here. Chapter 3, verse 8, it says, The lion has roared, and who will not fear? And then it tells us who that lion is. The Lord God has spoken, and who can but prophesy? So these words he has to say, he's a plain-spoken herdsman. He's not all that eloquent. He just has a direct approach to the, what he has to say to these people. And it's a solemn prophecy that he has. But he's saying here, the Lord has roared. That's the message that's coming out. And he goes on to speak judgment on all the surrounding nations of Israel. And a man said, I didn't actually look at this, but if you look at the nations and when he names them, it forms an X. And Israel and Judah are at the end, right in the middle. So you put yourself in these people of Israel. He comes up there and he starts prophesying. And the first thing he's doing is he is pronouncing judgment on all these nations that surround Israel. Well, what do we know about all those nations? Did they really like Israel? Were they their best friends? Constantly doing them harm, weren't they? Constantly have to fight and defend themselves against these nations. So they're down there hearing this prophet come up from Judah. And they're like, well, the guy's got a funny accent, but I like what he's saying. Because he's pronouncing judgment on all these nations that don't like us and haven't been our friends. And everything seems to be going good. But the interesting thing is, I'm not going to go through all this. You can read it on your own. The judgment he speaks on this nation is not because they're violating a personal relationship with God. And he doesn't get on them for not knowing his law. The things he gets on them are, are for things that everyone would know in their conscience that had never seen a Bible. And they're doing people wrong in a lot of different ways. I don't want to get into all that right now. But when he comes to his people, and so they're listening to all this, they're like, man, we kind of like this prophet with this southern accent. Well, look what happens in chapter 2, verse 4. Then Amos moves in to Judah, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. I will not turn away my punishment thereof. And here's where he deals with these people about. He deals with them differently than the nations of the world. They've got light. They've got revelation. And so what does he tell them? He says, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments and their lies cause them to err after the which their fathers have walked, I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. And wait a minute, these people up in Israel, listen, they're not living godly lives. They're not even worshiping where they're supposed to be worshiping. So they probably went from, man, we like what he's saying, to, wait a minute, he's on their case? Hmm. And next thing that comes, he nails them. Israel, verse 6, 
Thus saith the Lord, for the three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away my punishment thereof, because they said they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. And he goes on to say, basically he's saying, you're not treating people right. You're so greedy for gain, you're just trampling all over the poor of the land. That's what he basically gets on them about in the book of Amos. Violating the second half of the Ten Commandments. They were not loving their neighbors as they loved themselves. Just the opposite. They were greedy for gain. And so that's what happens. That's his message. And here's where he gets on them. And we need to pay attention to this part of it. Because God is the... What we see here in Amos is he is the sovereign God of the earth. So everyone's going to get his judgment. So even the nations on this earth now that there's millions of people... Billions of people that have never heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, never read a Bible. But does that mean they're going to escape judgment? Because we know from Romans too, no, they, they have light. They can see. They have a conscience that's telling them right for wrong that is hardwired into every single person born into this world. But listen, he has a stronger sentence against his people that have revelation, which is us. And we need to take this as a warning. Look what he says in chapter 3, verse 2. He, he had just got through telling them at the end of chapter 2 that, hey, I'm the one that delivered all these giants in the land and gave you the land. And look what he says in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And because of that, because his special love, care, and revelation to them, he tells them, therefore, Israel, listen up. I will punish you for all your iniquities. So we need, that's a warning that we need to take special heat to, don't we? Because, man, if we had a lot of revelation here, we have. This whole country has. America has been blessed with revelation in so many ways versus other countries. Boy, God's going to hold us responsible. And so that ought to tell us something. Do we really think biblically? We don't need prophecies from people coming, saying judgment's going to fall. We've got the Bible. How, how is it not going to happen, honestly? It's going to come. So when he's up there, this southerner, all of a sudden his accent's probably getting more pronounced. <laughs> you know what? And he's not a crowd favorite, I wouldn't say, at this point. But I'll tell you one thing, Amos was steadfast. You know, in chapter 7, we want to look at that. He talks about chastisements that were sent to these people. God sent. God's a God of love. He tried to wake them up. Sent prophets, he said, day after day. He said, I sent this chastisement. I caused it not to rain. So you would have to go to another city to get water. And yet for all of that, he says, they did not repent. He goes on and says that about five different times. I tried to get your all's attention, the Lord tells him. And you wouldn't repent. But he's faithful. And they finally come to him. The king of Israel comes to Amos and he says, listen, buddy, you know what? I think you just need to take a trip down south and just leave us alone. And Amos' answer is, look, I didn't ask for this job. I really didn't. I was happy with my, my little sheep and goats and whatever all he had and, and making the fruit ripe at just the right time of the year. I really was happy doing that. But he said, when the lion roared in me, I had to speak. I had to pray. And here I am. And you all aren't going to scare me off because he had a greater fear of God than he did their faces because it wasn't a popular message he had. It never is. Nobody wants to hear a judgment message. That's what the Bible has a lot of, though. So he's not a crowd favorite, but he faithfully delivers the word of the Lord. And as the story comes to the end for Israel, the final scene of that movie's played out. The promised beginning of Israel's golden age 
it devolved. It descended into mourning and devastation. Death, destruction, and silence from heaven, if we were watching it as a movie, that's what fills the screen in the end. It started off as a big party, but as that movie and the words the end descend, it's a devastating scene. That's what happened with Israel. The story is over, and the finality of their judgment, it's the last sentence we'll read in the verses we're going to read, and it says this, they will fall and not rise again. And I'm saying, this is my concern for our church. This is, not a, this is not a message of judgment and condemnation. It's a message of, let's see what happened to that, and let's wake up so it doesn't happen to us. That's all I'm trying to say today. So if you go to chapter 8, and we'll read all of chapter 8. Amos chapter 8, verse 1, we read, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord God. And there shall be many dead bodies in every place. And they shall cast them forth with silence. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn? And the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balance by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn that dwells therein? And it shall rise up wholly as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon. And I will darken the earth in the clear day, and I will turn your feast in the morning, and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins, and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the morning of an only son, and the end thereof as a bitter day. And behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land. Now, we've heard this verse a lot. A famine of bread, or not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. And they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst, and they that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fail. And what does it say? And never rise up again. So it'll be sober tonight. That's fine. Sometimes it needs to be. I mean, I'm not coming with a message like this every week. Well, listen, here's what the Apostle Paul told us, and we've heard this before, that what happened to Israel following their exodus, in the, and what we read about Israel following their exodus in the wilderness, it's like a flashing caution light to all of us. That's what it's to be. He used them as an example. It says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. And that's where we need to look at Amos 8. It's a warning. It's an instruction. 
It's for our admonition that we can see what they did and we don't have to make the same mistake. Because I think, you read all of Amos, it is awe-inspiring when you take the time to read what he's saying there, message from God delivered to his people. And he's telling all of us here, Israel, Judah, and everyone else of his people down through the ages, that failure, he's dealing with the second commandment. Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. That it'll ultimately, failure to do that, it will cause him to take his mercy and put it in his pocket and declare an end to the life, whether it's an individual, a church, or a nation. All of that's happened down through the years. And so we think that'll never happen to us. That's what everybody thought that it happened to. There's a lot of places that started out good and vibrant and right doctrine and all that that ended up in ash heaps through the years. So we, you're naive to think it can't happen. So listen, it's not to make you feel condemned or whatever. The warnings are put in the Bible because the elect will hear that warning and they'll say, I'm not going to allow that to happen to me. I don't want to be like them. That's what the warnings are there for. God's not doing that to put you in condemnation or fear that you're going to fall. It's to say, wait a minute, the elect will give heed to that. That's what the warnings are all there for. But let's look at this beginning in verses 1 to 3. Because he tells them here, the end has finally come. Mercy has ceased and judgment is declared. That's what we have, these first three verses. Thus hath the Lord showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said unto me, the end is come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord God. And there shall be many dead bodies in every place. And they shall cast them forth with silence. Now, I think to us today, you know, in modern urban America, to somehow connect summer fruit and the end of a nation, that somehow doesn't make sense. What, what is this summer fruit thing all about? But those people living back then, that was an agrarian society. They were fruit farmers and shepherds, and they would have made the clear connection because, for one thing, we don't get this in our English translation, but the Hebrew word for summer fruit and the end both of those Hebrew words that we have here, they would have sounded exactly the same. They're not spelled the same, but the pronunciation would have sounded to them exactly the same. Summer fruit in the end, it would have been the same. But more importantly, even than that, they would have understood that summer fruit, and summer fruit was figs and grapes, that came at the end of the Jewish agricultural year. That was the last fruit that came. The end of the fruit, the last fruit, the summer fruit, the last fruit that Israel produced would spell the end of the nation. Because God is saying, I'm looking at your fruit and judgment's coming as a result of that. This is the last fruit you're going to produce. That's what he's telling them there. What do you see? Summer fruit. Uh-oh. Summer fruit mean that is the last fruit is what they would have said. So it's an end to God's mercy. That's what we see at the end of verse 2. The end is come upon my people Israel, and he says, I will not pass by them again. Do you know what that language is there? I will not pass by them again. What does that sound like? It sounds like the Exodus, doesn't it? When it said he would pass over. Because when they had that blood over their homes, what did he say? That death angel came. He's destroying all the Egyptians. But what did he do? He passed over Israel. Because they were so righteous, Oh, because of his mercy, didn't he? 
And he'd done that time after time after time, passed over them in mercy and not judgment, sent them warnings, called on them to repent when he could have sent judgment. And he's telling them now, no longer. I'm done. I'm done passing over you. And now he says, I'm going to judge you just like I've judged all the other sinful nations. And the judgment is going to be severe. So if you look at verse 3, and it says, The songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord God, and there will be many dead bodies in every place. And so when you pass by a church or when you come to church, what do you expect to hear when it comes to the singing? I mean, you expect to hear joyful, harmonious singing coming from the windows if you walked by, wouldn't you? And he's saying, not anymore. No, in, the, in your temples where you worship, it's not going to be singing anymore, but it's going to come what? What are they going to hear? It's going to be, he says, wailing. That's going to be their song. Not the cheerful songs of Zion, but voices lifted up in bone-chilling wailing. And added to that, he's saying, will be the sight of dead corpses everywhere, lying around in piles. I mean, we've just recently been to the Holocaust Museum, and you go to that place, and you'll see mounds of, just to me, it's unbelievable how they, how could someone do that to other people? But there's mounds of dead corpses. Sometimes it's, you're seeing pictures, they've been freshly killed. And it's, you just expect them that they could get up and get moving, but they're dead, piles of dead bodies. And this is what he's saying, this is what's going to happen to Israel when Assyria comes. They were merciless. And he says, the songs of joy will be gone in these temples. It's going to be wailing now. And all around is going to be dead bodies piled up. That's what he says. Once lively dead bodies are going to be there. And here's the natural response to most people. And this is probably what you're thinking. I don't like hearing this. This is not the God I want to worship. Isn't it? I know it is. I know that's people's. I don't want to hear these kind of messages. I want to go to another church where they're more positive. But you think, how could God allow this to happen? And that's what Israel was thinking at the time. They're thinking, man, we just went from Partiesville, and we were worshiping. It's not like we didn't worship at all. And all of a sudden, this is happening? And look what it says. You don't quite get this again in the King James, but it said these dead bodies at the end of verse 3 were lying in every place, and it says they shall cast them forth with silence. And actually, there's a period there, and silence is one word. It's like that is God's answer to these people. You think that I'm unjust? You don't like the way my judgment has been poured out? He's saying, silence. You're going to question God's judgments against sinners? God is not unjust. He's saying, silence. Do not speak against the justice of the Almighty, even if you don't understand it and it seems to be severe. He's saying, put your finger, put your lips to your mouth. Because they got what they deserved. And so, doesn't it a lot of times, I think people think it's a blemish in God's character that there comes an end to his mercy and he acts in judgment. People think, man, I don't like that kind of God. I don't like to think about that. But listen, even in our state justice systems, habitual crime is not left unpunished. Because if you do, it just leaves a disregard for law and authority. 24 states, almost half the states in the United States have what are known as habitual offender laws, otherwise known as three-strike laws. So courts are mandated by these states, 24 states, to impose stiff 
sentences, and a lot of times it is life sentences to habitual offenders that have committed two prior serious offenses. And the reason for these laws is first twofold. First, you got to keep dangerous people like that off the streets, number one. And the second thing is you have to have some kind of deterrent to repeated crime, right? And so state officials, they understand if we just have unlimited mercy to criminals, it's dangerous to the welfare of society. And are we going to say that our state governments have more wisdom than God? When God says, I just can't let this just go on forever and ever and ever without finally judging. And it's not like he never did anything to warn him and plead with him and send prophets and he's still blessing them at this time and they're just misreading it all. So you can't say God hasn't dealt with them in love and mercy and tried to get them to come back. But at some point, just like with our state government, he says enough is enough. So I'm saying as Christians sitting here today, as Shelbyville Christian Assembly, we need to heed the warnings, and it's from Genesis to Revelation. Because we have before us the days of Noah, long-suffering. Noah's preaching. He's a preacher of righteousness. He's preaching to billions of people on the earth, and they didn't want to hear. And finally, the flood came. The world was destroyed. The warnings came to an end because they didn't want to hear it. I, I quoted this the other day, Proverbs 29.1, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof, after much reproof, will suddenly be destroyed, and that beyond remedy, without remedy. That's the word of God. There comes a point when it's too late. And we also, when we talked about Romans, I don't know if you all remember Romans 11, he said, you, you can't be high-minded, Gentiles, and think because right now Israel, for the most part, has been set aside and God's put you in place. Don't get cocky about that. What did he say? He says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity. But to you, kindness, if you continue in his kindness, he says, otherwise you too will be cut off. We've got to maintain a faithful walk with the Lord. Amen? <laughs> so we serve a God. I mean, I preach it all the time. He's abundant in mercy. But if you habitually disregard his voice and commandments, we will face the same type of judgment of Israel as old. Now, I'm saying habitually. I'm not saying somebody can't miss it and you got to sit there and worry you're going to get cut off. I'm not saying that because I used to worry about that kind of stuff when I heard certain messages because it wasn't preached balance. So no, we're not talking about you miss it. We're talking about your habitual lifestyle where you know you're living in sin and you just aren't going to do anything about it. That's trouble. Or you know, my heart's not towards the Lord. I'm just doing my own thing, and I know better. You know yourself in your heart, whether that's the way you're living or not. That is trouble. And that's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about somebody that their heart's towards the Lord. They miss it. They repent and get things right, and they're back in fellowship with the Lord. And, you know, we're not talking about people like that. If that's the case, you know, we're not talking about that. But if somebody does receive that judgment, can we complain about the justice of God. We have to be like Eli. You know, when that word came and he said, your house is going to be judged and the glory is going to depart. You know what Eli did? He at least had the sense to say, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. 
Eli at least had that much sense. Didn't take care of his boys, but he knew that God wasn't unfair and he wasn't going to argue about his sentence that was passed down. Let him do what seems good to him, is what he said. Secondly, we'll see the cause of the judgment in the hypocrisy. This is the cause of the judgment. Hypocrisy, greed, and disregard for other people. Because you think, what could possibly cause God to bring this severe judgment that we just read about on the people that he calls my people? And it's right here in verses 4 to 6. He says, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balance by deceit? that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. And there's the answer. So that first thing he says there is, Hear ye this, O ye that swallow up the needy. And various translations will, will translate that trampled, crushed, or swallowed up. <laughs> and one commentary, his name's Dwayne Garrett. He's a teacher I actually had at Southern that has a commentary on the book of Amos here. And he makes a good case that actually... What this is saying in the Hebrew, it's like a hunting dog that's going to sniff out its prey and panting after it so it can devour it. And I would agree with what he's saying. They're hunting them down, hunting down the poor and the needy. That's what the people of Israel, that's God's complaint against them to where they're to the point of distinction. And here's the thing. Here's why the judgment's so great on them because they had, if you ever study out God's commandments to take care of the poor and needy, there are tons of them throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Leviticus 25 has numerous commands to help the poor and needy and says not to trample on them. Just the opposite. You're supposed to sustain the needy and not charge them interest on a loan or sell them into slavery, but to help them out if possible. That's in the law. Get them out of debt if it's in your power to do that. Deuteronomy 15 says, you should generously open up your hand to the poor. It doesn't get into why the person's poor, but it says you should generously open up to your hand to the poor and not hold back in selfish greed. And they knew all that, and they just chose to disregard it, the nation did. And so here in verse 5, what he's doing when he talks about here, these people were hypocrites. And he's going to expose that here because... They seem like they are religious people, faithfully serving the Lord, and that's what he's talking about with the New Moon Festival. So there we're going to the New Moon Festival, serving the Lord, and we're observing all the Sabbaths, he's saying. Y'all are doing all the religious thing. But he said outwardly while they're worshiping, raising their hands, the whole time they're thinking about their businesses. Has anyone ever done that here? You're worshiping, hearing the word. And the whole time you're like, I'm up here talking and you're not hearing a thing anybody's saying or when Brother Hamels is up here. Instead, you got all these business transactions going on in your mind. What you're going to do the next day, you can't give God an hour. That's what he's talking about here with these guys. That's what he's saying here in verse 5, saying, when will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat? I mean, we can't wait for this Sunday to get over and church to get let out so we can go make a buck. That's what he's on them about, plotting on ways to make a profit. And then he goes on to say, man, and also I've been rigging my scales, and it's really helping me out. That's what he's talking about here. Look at that. Look at the end of verse 5. That we may set forth, we, we make the ephah small and the shekel great and falsify the balance by deceit. And nobody seems to notice. 
And it goes on to say, and we can even get cheap labor. Oh, we get these Mexicans for a buck. We don't pay them what they're worth. We pay them as little as we possibly can. He's saying, I can buy this Jewish person because he's so poor for a few nickels or just a pair of flip-flops. That's what he's saying. Look what he says there. In verse 6, he says, we can buy the poor for silver. We can hire them for nothing. And the needy for just a pair of flip-flops. They don't have shoes. That's all I have to offer them, and they'll work for me all day, all week. And also, he goes on to say, they sell the refuse of the week. So they're selling McDonald's garbage hamburgers for steaks because people need the food. And they're saying, we're getting away with all that. He's saying, you all are crooked. You're going to church, the new moon festivals and the Sabbath. You're all holy. And all the whole time you're thinking about, man, I can't wait to get back out on the business trail. And look what I'm able to do. Just change these weights a little bit there. And my profits are just increasing that much more. And I can tell them I'm selling them one thing and I'm really selling them something else. And listen, religious hypocrisy like that is not confined to the 8th century. Listen to this story. A pastor went to a neighborhood Applebee's restaurant in 2013 with members of her congregation. That was a little bit of a problem right there probably to begin with, right? But she goes to this Applebee's restaurant, and it was a plus $200 bill, and they divided it up amongst the people to pay for it. Well, when it's that much money, they have an automatic 18% gratuity tacked on. So she gets her $34.93 that she had agreed to pay for, and there's an 18% tip added on that came to $6.29. And so here's what this godly woman pastor did. She scratched out the $6.29 automatic tip and wrote in zero. And she put this note on there. She says, I give God 10%. Why do you get 18%? And then she signed above her name, pastor, just to let them know. So she thought she got away with that. Pastor Bell was her name. But you know what happened? Because I remember when it happened and it came out. And here on the internet is that receipt. That person, that waitress got so ticked off, it was posted on the internet for all the nation to see. What a testimony. The girl lost her job, but. <laughs> so do we do that? Do we take it? I mean, do you take advantage of somebody or are you generous? Do you hold out your hand? Those, a lot of those women that are waitresses, Brother Hamilton's talked about that. They don't make a lot of money. They got kids to support. Man, I mean, you got to not be on the low end of tipping, especially if they've done a good job. Give them on the high end. And that should just be with everything we do in life. We should be generous to people like that. So we shake our heads. A lot of you are shaking your heads and laughing. But how many times do we do things like that that are greedy at someone else's expense? So we got a lot of contractors here, and I've been a contractor, and I know how all this works. And so you're tempted to charge top dollar for your work, quality materials. That's what I'm, I'm going to give you, quality materials. And then you don't do a good job, or you find some cheap brand, I'll say paint since I was a painter, well, they'd never know the difference, and they probably wouldn't. And you do that, and then it comes time to witness to that person, and you're going to tell them that they need Jesus for their wicked heart. Something to think about. But I'm saying, you're falsifying your scales. If you're charging them for a good job, you need to do a good job, even if it gets covered up and nobody sees what you're doing. If you're saying, I'm giving you top-of-the-line materials, you better be giving them that. Or talking to them and giving them the discount because you didn't for whatever reason, right? That's what we're talking here. we got to have ethics. He's saying when their scale is, or you charge a rich person more because you know you can, 
Not because the job was worth anymore. That's not right. You should have an even scale that works all the way around. And so all of us, I mean, that applies to even housewives going doing their shopping. You don't, you don't try to cut somebody down in some price just because you can. Oh, I mean, I could tell stories about that. Customers I worked for. Rich people that would do things to just rip people off, knowing they were doing it and bragging to me about it. I'm like, that's terrible. And, you, and your house is under a curse. I know it is. Your husband just died of some sickness, devastating sickness, and you can't see what's going on here, but you were both that way. And it's tax season now. Hmm. Taxes are due Monday. So do we get away with stuff just because we know we can? Because nobody's going to find out. The government will never know. Is that the justification? Well, I'll do this. I wouldn't do it if I could get caught. That'd be a bad testimony. But I know I'll never get caught, so I'll do it. Well, guess the Lord is watching. He's bigger than H&R Block. So we just, you know, I mean, we could, we could uh, multiply all the examples, but I think we get the point. So... And also, we have to ask ourselves, are we living? I mean, everyone in America lives in luxury compared to the rest of the world. And ignoring poor people, whether in our church or poor people we know in the community that we could help out, and saying, hey, you know, let them use faith. That's what I had to do, Matthew 6.33, when it may be their faith is being used and God wants you to be the instrument to answer their faith, right? Because 1 John 3 says, whoever has this world goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Or we have the case of Ananias and Sapphira. They were trying to put on the show of how generous they were. Oh, yeah, we're like Barnabas. We sold everything, and here you have it and all that. And they got caught, didn't they? God exposed them. And that's what we're having here in Amos. He'll expose that religious hypocrisy. Fell down dead. Because all they had to do was just be honest about it. It's what Peter told them. But it said there was a purpose behind that. Great fear, it said, fell on all the churches. And only those that were serious joined. So he goes on to say here that God declares as a result of this. He said, the end has come. This is what you all have done. And here is my response. Physical judgment in verses 7 through 10. The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn that dwells therein? And it shall rise up holy as a flood, and shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, I will cause the sun to go down at noon, darken the earth in the clear day, and I will turn your feast into mourning. And so on and so forth. So he said, I've seen their sins, and this is what I'm going to do. There's no uncertainty, is there, about his intentions. Because he swears an oath by himself. And then he promises, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And then he goes on to say, what will happen? Now, there's a lot of parents that will say, the next time you do this, this is what I'm going to do to you, and it never happens. They got hollow promises of punishment. It's not that way with God. He's not a man like that. So when he swears, he swore two oaths here. When he swears one oath, it's trouble. But when he gives a double oath, watch out. Because we know what happened to Israel. He wasn't kidding. It wasn't an idle threat. And a question is asked in verse 8 there. He says, shall not the land tremble for this because of the Lord's anger? 
And it's probably meant to refer to a literal trembling of the land, an earthquake, because in verse 1, back in chapter 1, it talked about an earthquake that came. But I think it also figuratively points that the people are quaking in fear. In chapter 1, 2, it talks about the people will mourn. And that's what it says here in verse 8, shall not the land tremble for this, and every man mourn that dwells therein. So everything's going to be turned upside down. And that's why he goes on in verse 8 there to talk about the Nile River. That's what he's saying. The Nile River every year, it would overflow and everything would get turned upside down and then it would subside. And that's what he's saying is going to happen. Assyria is going to come on this land of Israel and it's going to just overturn everything. And then they'll leave. But it's going to be left devastated. That's what he's talking about there in verse 8 when he says, and it shall rise up holy as a flood. It shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. That's what he's referring to. And I'm saying my basement flooded not too long ago, and it's a mess. And it only took an hour. Messed up my whole basement. Had to get that all replaced and then whatever it was, and then it subsided. Within an hour, it's all done. Until I got Johnny over here to put a sump pump in. And that's what a commentator said. Said the invasion of Assyria would spread over the land like a flooding river, and the inhabitants would be overwhelmed by the invaders before it subsides. But he goes on, it's not just the land, he talks about also in verse 9, it's going to be in the heavenlies, in the cosmos. So it talks about that sun being darkened. It will cause the sun to go down at noon and will darken the earth in the clear day. And that's language of the day of the Lord. So it's referring to what happened to Israel here, but it's also talking about the coming judgment that hasn't happened yet on this earth, the day of the Lord, when it will be a dark day, the day of Yahweh. So he's saying this is how bad it's going to be in the land. It says the sun will not show its light in the middle of the day, even though it's a perfectly clear day. He's saying the sun will be black and the whole earth is going to be black as night. Now, whether that's metaphorical language, poetic language, I don't know. But all we do know is we do know that that happened when our Lord was crucified, didn't it? Middle, and so I think it's going to happen again literally. But either way, it's going to be a dark day, a mournful day. And he goes on to talk about it's best described as a funeral is what they're going to be experiencing. And that's what you have here in verse 10. He uses words like mourning, lamentation, sackcloth, boldness, and a bitter day. So nobody's going to be whistling a happy tune that day. Nobody's going to be humming around zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day, my, oh, my, what a wonderful day. It, it's not going to be going on on that day. That's what he's telling us here. He's saying that day is going to be so bad for those people in that land realizing they're under the judgment of God. He's saying, if you read verse 10, it's going to be like you have an only child. This only child that you love, and he loves you. And he just turns to age 21, and he's got a good job, a nice house, and he's getting ready to get married, and all of a sudden, he dies. He's saying, that's the way this morning is going to be for the people of this land when my judgment comes. Just like you had a son like that. That's the description God has given of what's coming. Deep grief, a bitter day. And so I would say, do we realize, really believe or realize that when God swears that he will judge sin, that he will follow through on his promise? He will, just like he'll follow through on his promises of blessings. He will follow through on his promises to judge sin. You know, this man told a story, it's a true story of a young preacher, and he announces his text 
He's standing in the pulpit. He yells it out. Behold, I come. And then he couldn't remember what else he was supposed to say. So he just said, I'll say it again. Maybe it'll come to you. Behold, I come. He still couldn't remember what he had to, wanted to say. So finally he said he grabbed hold of the pulpit real hard, kind of gave a Behold, I come. And the pulpit collapsed. And he, he fell right on top of a woman in the front row. And he sat there and he says he's totally embarrassed and apologized and said, she said, uh, no, 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 that wasn't your fault. She goes, I should have been prepared. You told me three times you were coming. <laughs> so the question is, how many times does God in his word have to swear that if we persistently walk in sin and won't repent and heed his word that he will judge us? Even if we're called Christian. Isn't that what Matthew 7 is talking about? Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done names all the things they've done? And he says, I will say unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that in the present tense, you're workers of iniquity, of sin, of lawlessness. I never knew you. Call me Lord, that's not going to cut it. Those are solemn words from the Lord Jesus Christ saying the same thing we have here. It's not an isolated picture in the Bible, though, is it? And I've said that before. We've got Sodom and Gomorrah, the book of Judges, Lamentations, the book of Revelation. They all, the book of Revelation, that'll make your hair stand on end if you take the time to read that. And that all shows us that God will judge sin. That's what that's all telling us there, from Genesis to Revelation. He's faithful to all of his promises, like I said, not just the ones for blessing. And I'll tell you, here's the thing. As he addressed these people that were prospering and they wouldn't listen. Are we listening to the Lord? To what he's saying? Because one day it hit them like a fast approaching storm. That's what happened when Assyria came. Ecclesiastes 8 says this, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the Son of Men among them are fully given to do evil. And although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and fear him openly. In other words, payday will come, as we talked about before. Can I just say this briefly, because I don't, I don't want to wear this whole thing out. I was going to read some of this, and I'm not going to do that. But this is a prophecy that was given by Stanley Frosham. He was friends with Smith Wigglesworth. Smith Wigglesworth actually conducted his marriage ceremony. And he wrote a book called With Signs Following. Excellent book to read. It's out of published, but you can still get it on Amazon. And he also wrote Smith Wigglesworth's original biography. I ran across this. I'd never seen this before. He had a prophecy given at this Elam Institution in New York in 1965, four years before he died. And... Anybody that wants it, I'll give you the link and you can read it. But he talks about it. I'm saying it's one of those things for me. It just clicks that I believe this is God. And you can find the link. Like I said, I'll give it to you. Or just you can Google Stanley Frosham, The Coming Deception. But he talks about there's a dark day coming on this land. And he says, you've known me and my love, but you have never experienced my wrath. And we haven't. Not here in America. But he says it's coming. But he also, it's not all negative. He says, there's going to come an anointing on those that are willing to be crucified with Christ and to walk with him. And with that anointing is going to come persecution. And he says a lot of positive things in there that for those that will walk faithful to the Lord, God's spirit will be on them and deliver them. But he also says there's a day of darkness coming. 
because I was praying about what to share tonight. And I ran across that. I wasn't even looking for it. And it's just like the Lord said, I read that out there. That is a sobering message, and I believe it's the Lord given back in 1965. But here, so we've seen the physical judgment that God's bringing on this earth, and now here is, well, we've heard this many times, the, the spiritual judgment that comes as a result, and that's in verses 11 to the end. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord, and they'll wander from sea to sea, from north to east. And they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. So this is the second aspect. There's a physical aspect of God's judgment, and here we have a spiritual aspect. And I'll tell you, though, one thing that's overlooked when you read this is that first word in verse 11. And he's saying, behold, there is grace in that word. He's telling them this is before it's happened. He's saying, behold, look, pay attention. I'm going to send this famine on the land for the word of God. Worse than any physical thing that could happen is this famine of the word of God. And he's saying, if you just pay attention, it doesn't have to happen. I mean, there are words. This is a hard prophecy. But if you go back to chapter 5, he four times tells them, Israel, just seek the Lord. That's the word to us. Seek me and you'll live. That's what we have to do. Determine we're going to do that if we're not doing it or continue to do it if we are. We don't have to be afraid. That Stanley Frost and prophecy says God will protect his people in that coming judgment and watch out for him. But behold, he's going to send that famine, a spiritual famine. So we're back to Deuteronomy 8. That is what is essential to life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And without those words, just like you would without physical bread, you will perish. We will without the word of God too. We will perish. And I don't think that this judgment, where it's placed in chapter 10, is a mistake. Because what's going on here is these people have experienced this wrath that's happened to them. And they're in mourning and bitterness on the judgments of God. And what's going what's to be taking place with them as a result of that? They're going to be doing what me and you would do. Or they're going to want answers. God, can you give me answers? Tell me what's happening here. And he's telling them ahead of time, no more answers are going to be found. I've shut up all the answers. You had them all right there. You didn't want them. And their cries for help are going to fall on deaf ears. One commentator said this, to receive no word from God in response to cries for help meant God had hidden his face from them, rejected them, and abandoned them to their enemies. And they're desperate because that's what verse 12 is telling us. They're like, we've got to find help. We've got to get a word from the Lord. And it says, verse 12, they wandered from sea to sea, north even to the east. All over Israel is what it's saying, running to and fro to just get a word from the Lord. We've got to hear from him. We've got to know what to do. And it says what? It's too late. The end of verse 12 says what? They cannot find it. No longer will their spiritual thirst be met because of their constant neglect. Listen, I went back and listened to a couple of Brother Hamilton's tapes from way back when, and I'm thinking, you know what? Things he's saying there and things I see that are going on now, I'm thinking, if we'd have been listening then, he had some really, really good things to say. And I'm thinking, maybe the old familiarity breeds contempt. I don't know. 
But I thought, we have got to pay attention to the word. Forget the vessel. Listen to what God is saying. Ask him, hey, let me get past the vessel. That's fine. I can understand you don't like my preaching style. It's no problem. But listen to what if God is saying. And if you all are praying for him to give me a message or whoever stands in this pulpit, whoever it is, we need to trust that that's what's taking place. Because I'm praying about what to preach. I'm taking what I do seriously, whether it's Wednesday or Sunday. And Lane had a great message for us last Wednesday. And Stephen had a testimony. And you decide not to come? You just missed out on something. So that's the way it could be. We've got to take the words of the Lord seriously. And he's telling us here, hey, you think you're young and vibrant and everything's good. And he's saying that this judgment that God is sending, it's going to devastate even the stoutest of the people. We've got a lot of young people in here that have a lot of promise. They're on fire for the Lord. And I think that is great. I really do. I'm excited about it personally. But here, look what happens here. Look in verse 13. It says, in that day shall the fair virgins and the young men faint for thirst. It's going to get them, the stoutest of the people, the youth. So we all, from the youth on up, need to take seriously what we're saying. And why, why, what were they doing? Here's what the youth were doing. Listen up, youth, verse 14, because they swear by the sin of Samaria and say thy God, O Dan, lives and the manner of Beersheba lives. Even they shall fail and never rise up again. He's talking about the youth there will fail and never rise up. You know what that's speaking of there? <laughs> Beersheba was to the south, the furthest south, and Dan was to the furthest north. And so he's saying all throughout the land of Israel, they had a temple up north that shouldn't have been there, worshipped a false god, the golden calves at Jeroboam. And they had the same on the south, right above Jerusalem in Beersheba. And he's saying these young people, they're going back and forth into all the shrines in between. They're worshipping the gods of this world. They've given themselves over to worldliness is what he's saying. That's why it says they will suffer for thirst. So you young people think, man, I want the shackles off. I don't want to, I don't like this religion of my parents and they won't let me do this or that. And I want to, I mean, go ahead. But the warning is right there. That's what these youth did. They wouldn't heed the word of God. So just all freedom is not what it appears to be. And old people could say that and that's coming from old people. Listen. <laughs> I was a wild young person. I'm not saying that because I don't know what it's all about. But it's an end that you don't want. So he says there, the end has come for my people Israel and I will spare them no longer. Never to rise again, it says it in the end of verse 14. So many of you here, I know, have seen that Tom Hanks movie, Castaway. So there's a scene at the beginning of that movie. When Hanks, he's at, I don't know if you all remember that, he's at a Christmas party. He's surrounded by family and friends, and they're sitting at this huge banquet table. And there is all kinds of meat, vegetables, casserole, desserts. They got wine and drink of all kind. <laughs> and they're having a big time. They're eating, telling jokes, and laughing with each other, having a big time. And a few hours later, Tom Hanks is sitting on that airplane. And man, his belly's still full from all that food he had. And you know what happens? An explosion takes place. Bam! And just that quick, everything's turned upside down for him. And that's what Amos is saying here. Everything's turned upside down. An explosion on that plane sends it crashing on the ocean. And the next morning, 
he finds himself on a deserted island in the middle of nowhere, and everything that he had taken for granted. Brother Hamilton preached here faithfully for 30-some years. Did we take that for granted? Were we listening? But everything he took for granted is suddenly gone. No food, nothing to drink, no joking, no laughter, and no buddy. No people are on that island for him in just one night and no words. So his feast turned to famine. And what's he doing? He's wandering that island looking for food and water and another person. It's a desperate time. And that's what Amos is talking about here. We cannot afford, we need to, if you've been reading your Bibles, keep reading your Bibles. Pray for understanding. Take time to pray and walk with the Lord and seek his face. Now is the time. Because here in America, it's just like his Christmas party right now. I mean, we, we are gluttonous on word. Amount of word, television ministries, radio ministries, study Bibles in the hundreds of thousands. I got most of them, I think, I guess. <laughs> the King James, the new NIV, NAU, ESV, New Living Translations, and Dying Translations. A lot of them are dying translations, right? <laughs> free sermons. We've never had this before in a church. You can listen to anybody you want to preach for free on the Internet. And if you want to look at them, you can get on YouTube and watch them. <laughs> thousands of churches every week. But are we taking all that for granted? Are we just sermon tasters all the time? <laughs> Are we hearing, but really yet we're neglecting. We're not really listening and meditating and figuring out how to put this in practice into my life. Are we doing that, making it a fabric of our lives? Because listen, you think of a Muslim country or China or someone like that, you think if they took over America, you're, we're going to have access to that stuff anymore? There is no way. We won't have Bibles. We won't have anything. And if you haven't hidden that word in your heart, you're going to be desperate searching for a word if you don't know the Lord at a time like that. It's got to be a fabric of our lives, and it's not out of the realm of possibility. You know, Israel at that time when Amos is there, to them, they had to think, this guy's a nut. He's a nut like Noah. Who's he talking to and about? Because there was no threat to them at all, and things were going great, and God was blessing their crops, and they were religious. And you know how long it took after this prophecy we're reading here? Forty years, and 40 years is nothing. 40 years, it was all turned upside down and done. Actually, it was 30 short years, and he brought that <laughs> famine on the land. So Acts 28, Paul told this to the Jews that rejected his word. He said, the Holy Ghost speaks rightly through the Isaiah prophet to your father, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing. So you, you come and you hear, or you listen on the radio or whatever. You keep on hearing, but you won't understand. You'll keep on seeing, he told him, but you'll not perceive, for the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, he said, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and God says, I would heal them. He'll always, that's always God's heart. He'll do that for anyone in here. So what's the message of Amos 8? What's the message of the night that God hates Israel of old and he can't wait to lower the boom on us? Is that what the message has been? I hope you haven't heard it that way. It's a gracious warning. He's pointing back. Look what happened to those people back then. Don't let it happen to you. It doesn't have to happen to us, to any of us, right? 
Learn from their mistakes, please. And he's saying, don't force my hand. Because he says in Isaiah that judgment is his strange work. It's nothing he delights in. God does not delight in judgment. But delights in people repenting and getting things right. But the warning is still clear though, right? If we don't give heed to it, if we fail to show love to our neighbor, he will do a strange work. And it will be irreversible at some point. So we don't want to make turning a profit the goal of our lives, do we? It's not worth it. God will supply. <laughs> so there's one thing he repeatedly condemns Old and New Testament. It's religious hypocrisy and neglecting the poor, the orphans, and the widows. And the lack of showing mercy is what brings his judgment. He says, I'll never forget your deeds. So we need to heed James. He said this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained in the world and he goes on to say this if you disrespect the poor and the needy or someone that you just don't like at church because you don't like their personality and don't want to be around them we Lane had a really good message on that and I think we're gonna have good fruit out of that I saw last night after the meeting I saw a lot of people talking to I mean that was really a blessing for me and James says this but if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors he says so speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy will triumph over judgment. So let me just say this last word. Let's just prize and cherish this word that we have and think on it and meditate on it and act on it and let's seek the Lord and pray to him and make that communion with him and our relationship with him our number one priority, which is what we should all already be doing. But let's just make a determination that we'll do that so that we don't have to have this judgment of Amos 8 fall on us and surprise us when it comes. We'll be ready for it. Watch and pray, he says. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's just a hard message in your word. It's just a hard message that you gave the prophet Amos, Lord. It's sometimes hard to receive, and we would like to hear something else. But, Lord, when that dark day comes and we're ready for it because you have us prepared, we will just be so thankful. And I just ask you, Lord, that you'll cause all of us here to take heed to your word, to take heed to that warning, and that we can learn from Israel that the time of prosperity is not the time to turn our back on you, but it is the time to seek you first and holy and to make you the number one goal of our day and our life, our relationship with you, and, and also with each other, Lord, that we'll just continue to look out for each other and not neglect the poor and the needy, but we'll pray for them and help them when we have a chance, and that we will just grow in love, Lord, and when we do that, your spirit will be manifest in this body, and we will see your presence here, and we will see miraculous things take place because that's what happens in your word, and that's what you promise. And I just ask you'll do that for us here, Lord, in this Church Shelbyville Christian Assembly. That's our prayer. And we pray that now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.